and there are five discourses or five sermons that Jesus Christ gives. Uh, we looked at the first four, and then uh, we couldn't complete, and so we want to come back and finish the fifth today, uh, and that's the Olivet Discourse. And I believe that uh, it comes right at the time when, when everybody celebrates the Palm Sunday. It's a good uh, thing to come back here and look at the Olivet uh, Discourse. So just as a quick review, this is what is there in the book of uh, Matthew, the five discourses. The first one is the Sermon on the Mount. We see that in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. And then you have the, uh, the missionary discourse in Matthew chapter 10, where uh, the Lord Jesus Christ sends the apostles out to the towns and to the villages in Israel. And you might even call it the Little Commission, as opposed to the Great Commission, which is there at the end of Matthew. And the third one is the, uh, the parabolic discourse or the kingdom uh, of heaven parables in Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 18, you have the discourse of the church. And then in Matthew chapter 24, you have the Oliver discourse. Now, um, now, we all know that the gospels, the four gospels that are written, it's not necessarily the chronological narrative. They are all put together around a theme. And Matthew writes king uh, as Jesus, as the king of the Jews. And, and so it's only apt that if he's the king, that he would explain to us what his kingdom is all about. So the Sermon on the Mount really is about the moral, moral code. Uh, then you get to the, uh, the missionary discourse, which is about the missional compulsion. Jesus is saying, go, invite people to come to, to the kingdom. And you get to Matthew 13, which gives us the, the, the feel of what the kingdom is all about, the material composition of the kingdom. And you get to uh, Matthew 18, which is about the church, it's the, the people that, that compose uh, what does the kingdom look like, and you get to Matthew 24, it's the majestic consolidation, how does the end of things come about, and so Matthew does that very systematically, and that was our intention to go through, and today we are at the Olivet Discourse, all right, so that is where we, 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 we are as we look at this discourse. And what I'd like to do is to give you a context of the passage. It's important that we understand what is this passage sitting on, and then we will look at the concerns that the disciple has, have, and, and then bring it uh, to ourselves, how does that apply to us? And that's important because as we leave this place, we need to know what is it that God has for us. And so the first is the timeline. If you've been hanging out with Jesus, this would have been a very busy week, right? So if you were to go two weeks, uh, two days prior, just two days ago was a triumphal entry. So if today is a Palm Sunday, this passage is sitting for us on like two days from now, Tuesday, all right? So I want you to just go back two days, so triumphal entry, triumphal entry. 
We know the scenario, right? The, the Lord Jesus Christ coming riding on a donkey as he comes into the city. That's the picture of a triumphant king coming into his royal city, heading to the royal palace. And he comes on his royal horse. And yet, Jesus, from Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, we see, See your king coming to you, riding on a donkey, and humble. And so our, our, the people are excited, they're celebrating, and as he comes into this royal city, into Jerusalem, instead of taking one turn to go to the Herod's palace, he turns the other way to go to the temple. And in my mind, this is what I'm thinking. If I were a mu- movie director, that's where the music goes, wow. You know, I was like, oh, the expectation, the something else that was supposed to happen didn't happen because these people were expecting a political overthrow of Herod that the established, uh, uh, the, the throne would be, uh, you know, uh, usurped and, and uh, he would establish his political kingdom. But no, Jesus has come to establish the spiritual kingdom. And so he goes to the temple. And, and if you put all the four Gospels together in the narrative, we understand that on that day, he just looks around at the buildings and then he goes to Bethany. That happened two days ago. And yesterday, as he gets out from Bethany, is coming to Jerusalem, he's hungry and he looks at the fig tree. He looks at the fig tree, it's put out its leaves, and so he goes expecting some fruits and he doesn't find it. And so what does he do? He curses it. Uh, We would have thought like, oh, that's not fair because it says that it was not its season. But however, a fig tree does not put out its leaves unless it has fruits. And so Jesus curses the tree and and then he gets to Jerusalem and, and he cleanses the temple. And we read in Matthew chapter 21 that he overthrows the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. So, that was yesterday. What happened today? What happened yesterday is after that, he goes back to Bethany, and he is returning back from Bethany. And as he's coming in, he, the, the disciples see the fig tree. What ha- what's happened to the fig tree? The fig tree is withered from the root up, and they pointed out to Jesus. In fact, it's very symbolic because we know fig tree is that it's a picture of the nation of Israel. Nation of Israel had everything, the trappings of everything that looked religious, and it had no fruit. It was spiritually dry. And then he comes into the temple, and that's where we were reminded this morning the seven woes on the Pharisees and on the scribes. Right? And, um, and then today, as he comes back, Matthew chapter 23, in the last verse, this is how it ends. See that your house is left to you desolate, verse 38, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Uh, I'm not sure if he caught the drift, but this is what's happening. He, he's already cursed the nation of Israel. He's already cursed the religious leaders. Now he's cursed uh, the temple. The house is left to you desolate. That house is about the temple. And he's done all that, and I just love the way this verse, 20, chapter 24, verse 1 starts. It says, Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. 
Jesus left the building. You know, I, I think about it and I was like, you know, the king has left the building. Elvis has left the building. It's that, this is where it first must have originated. Jesus left the building. He has left the temple. As in Ezekiel, as we read, the glory has departed. This is what it is. Jesus is not going back to the temple. He has left the temple. And what do the people do? The disciples are standing there and says, Jesus, Jesus, look at the stones. They're so caught up in the external. And Jesus had to tell them, not one stone is going to be left on another. It will be dropped down. But I want to give us a quick overview of the temple, this temple that was built, so that we understand what it is before we come down to it. Uh, John chapter 2, verse 20 says it took 46 years to build that temple. And uh, the construction of that temple was only complete in AD 63, which means when the Lord walked on this earth during his earthly ministry, construction was still going on. AD 63, it's, it's completed. And in seven years, in AD 70, the temple is destroyed. And Haggai 2.9, we read the prophecy that the glory of this temple, of the second temple, that the one that Zerubbabel builds would be greater than that of Solomon's. Now we know it was greater because Jesus himself walked that courts. And in that essence, it is glorious, but also it is glorious because of its size. It is bigger. Uh, let me read to you uh, what Joseph as the Jew has written. He says, he kept 10,000 men at work and they worked night and day because of its magnificence magnificence and stateliness and it exceeded Solomon's temple. Those are the words of Josephus. So when the disciples hear this, there are two things that come to the mind. One is prophetically they have a problem because Ezekiel, Daniel, and Zechariah have said there's going to be sacrifices at the end of the age. And in physically too, each of the stones that have been used, again, Josephus puts there, one stone would be 37 feet long, which is about the size of this hall. 37 feet long, 12 feet high, which would be just a little less than the uh, height of that window, and that it will be 18 feet thick. That's the size of a stone. Now, when the disciples look at it, I mean, they're from Galilee, I guess, you know, they've never seen such magnificence. They look at that and it says, now the stones are going to be toppled. Nothing's going to be there. I'd like you to get this imagery in your head. And so that's why, in trying to put this prophetically and physically as we come together, that's why they ask these three questions, the, the concern of the disciples, the three questions. When will these things be? What are the signs of your coming and of the end of the age? They recognize that, you know, the end of the age, if, if they assume that this temple is the one that's going to be there to the end of the age, and if it's going to be toppled over, when are you coming? What's going to happen? That's the concern. They want to understand that. And so let's look very quickly at the outline as Jesus gives it. Go through it, and then we'll come back again, all right? So first, Jesus begins with two warnings. He says, see that no one mis- misle- misleads you in verse 4. In verse 6, 
he says, do not be alarmed, do not be fooled, do not be fearful. One of the things that we want to take away today is, is just this, do not be fooled, do not be fearful, be fa- do, not be, do not be fooled, do not be fearful, be faithful. All right, so that's the tagline I want you to remember. We keep coming back to that again and again. And Jesus gives the answer to this discourse. This is the longest that he's given. He hasn't, he, 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 for him it's important that we understand this. And it begins with this. And he says, do not be fooled, do not be fearful. And then he lists 10 things from verse 5 to verse 12. Verse 5 says there'll be deception. Many will be led astray. Verse 6 says there'll be dissension, wars and rumors of wars. Verse 7 says there'll be devastation, famines and earthquakes. Verse 7 says there'll be disease, pestilence. Verse 7 says there'll be disaster, there'll be earthquakes. Verse 9 says there'll be death and putting to death. Verse 10 says there's disloyalty. People will betray one another. Verse 11, there'll be delusion. There'll be false prophets. Verse 12 says there'll be defection. Love of many will grow cold and turn from, from God. And, and, and with all these nine things, before he gets to the 10th one, he says, when you hear these things and listen to these things, these are just the beginning of the birth pangs. It's not time to take the mother to the hospital as, as yet. It's just the beginning of the birth banks. And then he says the 10th one, which is the declaration, the gospel of, will be announced in the, to all nations, all ethnos. And then will the end come. All right, and then he talks about in verse 15 to verse 21 about the abomination of the desolation. The abomination of the desolation. Now, when the disciples heard that, they, their spine must have, you know, the hairs would have st- stood up on the, on, the back of the, on the back. You know why? Because they immediately recognized that phrase was used by Daniel. It was announced, it was prophesied by Daniel. And 200 years prior, there was actually a Syrian king, Antiochus Epiphanes who actually slaughtered a pig on the altar. The, the, he had put a statue of Zeus in that temple, and that was called the abomination of desolation. But now Jesus is talking about something that's yet to come, and so they're like, wow, this is, this is getting even crazier. And in some sense, in AD 70, when the Roman emperor, uh, at that time he was the general, the general Titus, as he overtook, besieged, uh, Jerusalem, and he destroyed the temple. Just before that, he puts the Roman emperor statue in the, in the temple. And so some people would say that, yes, this prophecy has been fulfilled. But however, the, the Antichrist or the abomination of desolation did not sign a covenant, a seven-year covenant, and didn't break it halfway through. And, and because of all that, we still expect something to happen in the future, the abomination of the desolation. And he gives about what that is going to look like till verse 21. And then in verse 29 to 31, he talks about the coming of the Son of Man. And then in verse 36 to 35, the warning to be prepared and to be faithful. And so looking at that, I think we, we pause to see what is the caution? What is it, what's the, what, 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 what is it that we take away? And before we get to that, I want to quickly touch on two of the 
accuracy of the fulfillment of the prophecy. We believe it's a partial fulfillment. It's not complete. It's going to still happen. But what has happened is so accurate that we can trust the words of Jesus. And so the first of that is in, in the phrase in verse 2, it says, no one, no one stone upon the other that will not be thrown down. Not one be thrown down. Well, I'm not sure about the history, but I just want to take you quickly through the history so that you understand. In AD 66, the, uh, the, uh, the uh, Jews in Judea, they rebelled against uh, Rome, and so there was a siege against Jerusalem. And in that siege, after five months of siege, Jerusalem falls. And because during the siege, so many lives were lost, and it, it was a prized thing, the soldiers running into the temple. Now, General Titus, who was responsible for the siege, he did not want the temple to be broken down because the temple was there for 500 years. And he wanted to make that into a Roman temple. But because of the, you know, the fury of these soldiers, they came running in. There was this fire that was lit, and the whole temple was set to fire. And the gold and the dome started to melt, and it came down these cracks and, the, and between the mortars of the, of, you know, between the stones. And Rome, that was desperate to get their hands on the gold because they want to fund these wars, made sure they would, you know, they would topple all these stones so that they can get to the gold. Let me read to you some quotes. The archaeology of Jerusalem area, Harold Mayer, he writes, he was a president of the Near East Archaeological Society. He writes, we do not have any remains of the Herodian temple itself because of the devastating Roman destruction in AD 70. Another scholar writes, strictly speaking, the temple proper is not a matter of archaeological consideration since only one stone from it and parts of another can be positively identified. I'm not sure if you got the picture about this huge stones, grand temple, not one stone over the other. And Christians who've had the privilege to go and see, and when they see the rubble of all that could have been the temple, they stand in awe at the accuracy of the fulfillment of the prophecy that Jesus gives. The accuracy. And then the second part, which is in 15 to 24, in the abomination of the desolation, it says, let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Now, Jack Kelly, another Bible scholar, he, he explains the improbability of being able to escape when the siege is on. Let me explain. When a siege is drawn by an enemy, uh, the armies of, the, of your enemies, they don't want to let any of these civilians escape because the more that are trapped in and as you begin to see the starvation of the children and of the women, the morale of the people will, will go down. And as a result of that, they, you know, they can uh, break through easily. And you must also understand that the siege actually happened during the Passover, and so there would have been so many visitors who came into Jerusalem. Uh, Josephus says there could have been, uh, there were more than a million Jews in Jerusalem at that time. 
And so this prophecy that when you see that to leave did not seem possible. But yet, what happened is, you see, when the rebellion happened, Emperor Nero sends Vespasian, the general Vespasian, who draws the siege on the on Jerusalem. During this five-month period, what has already happened now is Nero has died. It's, if you read history, it's also called the, the year of the four uh, uh, emperors. And each in that year, there were four different emperors. Now, Vespasian leaves the charge under his son, Titus, goes back to Rome so that he can consolidate his position. He would become the emperor. And while he's there, he realizes he might need some extra help. And so he sends word to General Titus, his son, saying, come, I, you know, I'd like you to come, bring your armies in. And, and so as they ready themselves to leave, Vespasian realizes, okay, I don't need that. You, you can continue. So he sends another word back saying that continue with the siege. But during just that week, the siege had opened up. This is what Josephus had to write. He writes, although 1.2 million Jews died in Rome's defeat of Israel, uh, so it's according to Josephus, not one Christian perished in the siege of Jerusalem. The Lord's advice had been sound and even strategically clever. I, I read that and I was like, you know, when Jesus gave that, the disciples couldn't understand how would this giant of a building, how would the accuracy of the prophecy be? And we have today the confidence, if it were, if we needed evidence as we look back, that whatever he says will come true. And so when he gives us the caution, when he says, you know, don't be fooled, don't be fearful, be faithful, it's something that we need to sit up and listen. All right? So he says in verse 4, see that no one leads you astray. Don't be fooled. Don't be deceived. When we think about deception, the first thing, first thing that Eve tells the Lord when confronted, why did you do it? She says what? The serpent deceived me and I ate. Genesis chapter 3 verse 13. Deception. You know, the story is not very different today, isn't it? Because uh, the problem with deception is we think everything's okay with us. The problem is with the person who's sitting next to us or front of us or somewhere here or somewhere at, at workplace. It's never us, and that's deception. Lifeway did a research, uh, which was funded by Legionnaire Ministries. They wanted to find out the temperature of America's theological health. And R.C. Sproul, who is the founder-president, says what comes out screaming through this survey is the pervasive influence of humanism. Humanism. So you might ask, what is humanism? I like the way the book of Judges ends. The last verse in the book of Judges is, there was no king in Israel that day, and everybody did what was right in their own eyes. That is humanism, brothers and sisters. When we start to do things 
when we assume that we know what the Bible is saying and start to do things as we want to do, that is where we are deceived. We are deceived. And um, if you really look at it, this, this discourse was given partly because the disciples were deceived, weren't they? Jesus is actually walking away from the temple. They should have seen the pattern. They should have seen that the nation of Israel was deceived, the, uh, sorry, accursed. The, the, the rulers and the scribes and the Pharisees, they were the woes upon them. And now he says about the temple and he's walking away and still the disciples stand there looking at the majesty of the external trappings as we often do. Everything from the outside. That's deception. We get caught up sometimes. And we think everything is okay. And we, we start to think about deception, right? We, we think about others, and, and this sense of self-righteousness rises up. We are better. Look at him. Look at her. That rising self-righteousness saying that the fault is not in here, it's somewhere else, that's a sure sign of deception. Because if there is burden in your heart for someone else, it makes you first to think less of yourself than him and, and, or her and come around to see how is it that together as a community that we can help each other because Galatians tells us, you know, I can fall, you can fall, we can all can fall. And the reason why we are, we are here together as a community is so that we can help each other and, and strengthen each other, encourage each other, build each other. You know, the antidote is in verse 25, chapter 24, 25. It says, see, I have told you beforehand. And that's the best antidote. When we know that, that God's word, we can recite, we come back and read and, and spend time understanding how to live this life for life and for godliness. Let me ask you a question. Who, who do you think reads the Bible the most? I've been asking this question. You know who I think it is? I think it's the devil. He can quote it. He can tell you exactly what it is. And he must be thinking, I'm trying to get into the mind of the devil. I mean, I, it's not a right thing to do, but I think like he's probably thinking that, you know, God's laid out all his strategy. He's telling what's going to happen at the end of the day. And, you know, Revelation, uh, it's like getting the blueprint for the battle. I've got it all. Man, all I have to do is just stay one step ahead of God and God's word. And I, I'm cool. I'm going to win. And little does he know that he can't. To us, to whom it's given, so that everything that we need for life and for godliness. And that's the reason why we come back again and again. Don't give up on reading the word of God, reading to yourself, reading to the family, reading to your kids, because it's only in God's word as we invest our lives into it that we can stay away from deception. There's just no other way. Just no other way. Because everything else would be doing what is right in our own eyes what is right in our own eyes. And I hope that is not what it is. And the second one, verse 6, stay with me as we see this. Don't be fearful. Don't be fearful. It only seems so natural at the turn of events as we think about what's going on around us, you know, in, in uh, the Middle East or even down in the U.S. One of the Psalms that really 
thrills my heart is Psalm 46. God is our refuge and our strength, our very present help in, in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. Though the earth give way, though the mountains be cast into the heart of the sea, though the waters roar and foam, though the, water, though the mountains uh, shake or tremble at its swelling. Sailor, sailor, rest. I will have rest, even though it happens. And it's interesting. When I think about this uh, psalm, Psalm 46, my thought goes through, I, I believe it's uh, Matthew 17, where the Lord Jesus Christ says that if you have faith enough, you can ask this mountain to be thrown into the sea. And here the psalmist is saying, uh, you know, I will not fear if the mountains be cast into the heart of the sea. And I'm thinking, like, what's happening here? You see, sometimes a mountain could be a challenge that you find it difficult to climb over. And sometimes it's a point of safety as you want to go up and recite. And the psalmist is saying, if it is a point of safety, I want us to know that even if it's shaken up and thrown in the middle, in the heart of the sea, I will not fear. Though the waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling, sailor, do not fear. Do not fear. Allow how it says there, right? And, and um, it says he's at the gate. You know, when all these things happen, he is near. It's going to happen. It's near the gate, it says, and as you get down to, towards the end of the chapter. And the antidote here is in verse 13, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. In verse 13, it says, what it's saying is, dear brothers and sisters, hang on. This roller coaster ride is going to end. At, at, it's just around the corner. It's just around the corner. Do not be fearful. He is not delayed. Because 32 and 33, it says the fig tree, when you see the fig tree, learn this lesson. As soon as the branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. And that's why we, the, today uh, we were reminded in the book of Revelation, Maranatha, Lord is coming. Even so, come Lord Jesus. Even so, come Lord Jesus. We are not fearful. You see, the, this book of Revelation was written for these first century Christians who were being persecuted. You know, what they would be done, what would be done to them, they would take this animal hide, sew them up in the animal hide, feed them to the wild animals. Nero would take, have them take, dipped in tar, lit them as a torch so that their screams would help with the orgy parties. And that's the fiery trial that Peter is talking about. And so the, the first century Christians would think about this and they would wait for the time when the Lord is coming back. And 2,000 years later, our hope is not dwindled. Our hope shines brighter. I want you to know. We, we, we're not giving up. We're not saying that it's 2,000 years. The Lord's forgotten. He says, no, because of the accuracy of his prophecy, let him be. Let him come soon. Come, Lord. That's our cry. And 2,000 years later, it only cry, cries only louder and heartfelt. Do not be fearful. Do not be fearful. The summer is here. The fig tree has put out its leaves. And the Lord is coming. And Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 8. I love how it's laid out. You know what it says? 
It says, then shall the lawless one be revealed. And the Lord Jesus Christ will kill with the breath of his mouth and be utterly destroyed by the appearance of his coming. But the breath of his mouth, and I looked at that and I said, Lord, this, only you can do this. Because in Genesis, it was his breath that gave me life, made Adam a spiritual man, and he gives me breath. And with the breath of his mouth, this evil one, this lawless one, the one who troubles us, will be destroyed. I want us to know Jesus is not fooling around when he says that he means business. Don't be fooled. Don't be fearful. Be faithful. And so he ends that. We didn't read that, but I'd like you to go back, read the end of 24 and into 25. There are four parables that he gives. And as I read about being faithful and being prepared and being ready and, and not being fearful, I'm, I'm reminded of this uh, uh, you know, story that I read once of a, of a, of a young woman who was to go on a blind date. And so this is not like an ordinary date. And this, this date was, I had booked uh, to go to this expensive restaurant and, you know, a great place. And so she takes a day off. She, she goes to manicure and pedicure and, you know, I don't know what all they do, but they've done all that, got herself got a new dress. And, and she is all ready and she's ready for that 6 o'clock when the date was supposed to come and she waits Six, and it's already now seven o'clock, and then she realizes, oh, I've been stood up. So she goes up, and, you know, everything is taken out, and gets into her PJs, and gets whatever junk food she's got, and sits to watch TV, and that's when she hears the knock on the door. And she opens, and she finds the date, and date looks at her and says, what? I gave you an extra hour, and not ready as yet? The Lord is not going to be delayed. The Lord has not delayed that. I want you to know, brothers and sisters. He is not. Every time we see, for on the right time we read in Romans 5. We read about the time where when the hour had came, he sat down with his disciples. He is a God who made the time and he keeps his time. We are the ones who do not keep our time. But he does. He does. And so he gives these four parables, parables of the two stewards, parable of the two vir- uh, ten virgins, parable of the good and faithful servant, the parable of the goats and the sheep, reminding us again and again there are two kinds of people. The people who are faithful or people who are not. People who are prepared, people who are not people who, who follow what God has said to them in his word and those who do not. You see, it's interesting in the, in the passage that was also read before about the uh, goats and the sheep, um, we sometimes think it's our piety that, that you know, is going to make this difference. And I want us to understand that it's not our, our works, but that we are demonstrating faithfully what we've been prepared for, Romans uh, sorry, Ephesians 2.10. We are God's workmanship, which he uh, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which he prepared 
beforehand so that we may walk in him. So what he's saying, God created us, we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto, not for, not you know, we can do something. God has already created. Now he's expecting us to walk in it. It's about faithfulness. Dear brothers and sisters, this is my plea. This is my cry to you that we be found faithful. Just as those two people were there, one was said, well done, good and faithful servant. Nothing more do we expect to hear, or do we even want to hear, except those wonderful, wonderful words, that we would be found good and faithful, prepared and ready, that at the coming of the Lord, we would not be fearful. And and so, in my heart, the song keeps coming back, and I'm just going to read it to you. It says, the marketplace is empty, no more traffic in the street. All the builder's tools are silent, no more time to harvest wheat. Busy housewives seize the labor in the courtroom, no debate. Work on earth has been suspended as the king comes through the gate. Happy faces line the hallway. Those whose lives have been redeemed, broken homes he has mended, those from prison he he has freed little children and the aged hand in hand stand all glow who were crippled broken ruined clad in garments white as snow the king is coming the king is coming i just heard the trumpet sounding and soon his face i'll see the king is coming the king is coming praise god he is coming for me that's the unfading hope that we have He is not delayed. The first time when he came in the triumphal entry, he came on a donkey. He came as a humble servant. But I want to end with the time he's going to come in that triumphal entry from Revelation chapter 19. If I I can have you all stand with me as I read from Revelation chapter 19, verse 11 to 16, and then I'll close in, in a word of prayer. Revelation 19, 11 to 16. Then I saw the heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like the flame of fire, and on his head are like many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of the God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Father God, we want to thank you that this is going to be, this is going to be, and we pray it'll happen in our lifetime. And we pray, Lord, that that even as as your name is muddied around the world, we pray, Lord, that each day that you give us would be lived to bring the light of the gospel to shine forth into those dark spots, even in our communities, Lord. 
We thank you that we were, you prepared our hearts, Lord, to receive this humble king. And therefore, today we can say that we are prepared to see the king coming in as majesty. He is the Lord of lords, the king of kings. And we pray, Lord, if today in our midst there is somebody who has no assurance of where they are and what they are doing, if they are deceived in some sense, Lord, that your spirit will impress upon them. Lord, it's not about the trappings of where they were born or to who they were born or what they did or what they've been doing, but it's all about Jesus Christ. He alone is the way, the truth, and the life. And it's entrusting in him, no one else, Lord, no one else, there's no other name given in heaven under on earth and under 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 the earth whereby we must under under heaven whereby we may be saved we thank you we pray lord that even as uh, as lord as our, our your people go out and uh, do the various things, Lord, the homework club that's coming up on Thursday, the distribution that happens on Thursday, the, the, uh, uh, the conference where they contribute, Lord, and even as they give out those tracts and the work that they do at home, Lord, teaching their children just like Abraham did. Lord, that as we do this day in and day out, Father, we pray that you would give them the joy of experiencing the fruit of them turning to you and fearing you, for you alone are worthy of all praise and honor and glory and majesty, and we bring it to you, laid at your feet, as your people and all God's people said, amen.